Welcome back to the Small Town Summit Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Whittinghill. As always, one of our aims is to take the rich theology and lived experience that we enjoy at our summits and make them accessible to you wherever you live and minister. So, for example, we had a great breakout session from Joel Saddam on singing in small places at our Rhode Island Summit in March. And I'm excited to make that available to you today. Joel really helps us to hone in on how we can exalt Christ, even in the midst of weaknesses that may be unique to small town ministry. But in the midst of our weakness, we can exalt Christ through congregational singing. So how do you cultivate a more glad worship of the Lord Jesus through song as a church? To that end, uh, we pray that this breakout session from Joel is a great blessing to you. Have you ever heard the slogan, the medium is the message? Does anybody know who said it? Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan was a uh, communication theorist who coined this expression. I, I believe it was at the advent of television. And on this side of the internet, I would say this is an expression that's just a given at this point. The medium is the message. Uh, how you communicate a message, that, that's the medium, right? The packaging that it comes in, it's powerful. Uh, if not more powerful at times than the message itself. So YouTube understands this, Hollywood understands it, the, the music industry understands it. This also means that a message can be communicated and be totally undermined by how it is communicated. So imagine a pastor sitting on a stool and in a calm, nonchalant voice talking about the horrors of hell. Or imagine a pastor banging on a pulpit, angrily declaring that God loves sinners. Now, the medium, we, we see in those examples, the medium is not in sync with the message. And though God can powerfully still work <laughs> through those mediums, and he, he often does by his grace, chances are that most times people are not being convinced of the horrors of hell by the nonchalant stool preacher or the love of God from the angry Bible thumper. The medium is the message, that our tone matters. How we show up matters. Uh, Psalm 29, verse 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. How should we do it? We should worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So this breakout, the, the focus is on singing in small places. And my goal is for us to think about both the medium and the message when it comes to congregational singing. So two, two epistles that help us think about this are Colossians and 2 Corinthians. So I know this is a summit on 2 Corinthians, but I'm going to sprinkle some Colossians in as well. Colossians is about the message. Uh, false teachers have infiltrated the church, and they're preaching a form of Christian mysticism, a form of Christian Gnosticism. And in Colossians Chapter 3, 15 and 16, Paul addresses the importance of singing because singing is the way that the message about Christ dwells richly among us. I think there's an anecdote about Martin Luther that you know, some Catholic priest was lamenting Martin Luther's ministry, but he said that it wasn't his preaching 
that in their opinion was sending people to hell, but it was the hymns that were being sung uh, during the time of the Reformation. There's a power to singing, the way that they carry the message. Paul is saying one of the ways that we fight heresy, one of the ways that we root ourselves in the truth, one of the ways that we hold on to the, the biblical Christ is that we sing songs about Christ. We sing songs about his person and work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his heavenly intercession, his second coming. The message about Christ dwells richly among God's people. And as a result, the church is united in that truth and in the love of the Savior. All right, so let's talk. That, that's the message. So let's talk about the medium. Second Corinthians is about the medium, right? Super apostles infiltrate the church at Corinth, and they're impressing people with not just what they're saying, but the, the way they're saying it. Polished speeches, a commanding presence. They discredit Paul as someone whose bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. These teachers and the church at Corinth had bought into the values of the culture, that weakness is bad and power is good. It was all about image. It was all about impressing the crowd. And the result is a ministry that glorifies the pastor and gives a sense of glory to the people, sense of identity to the people. Now, that doesn't sound anything like our evangelical world today, does it? Uh, no, it does. It often feels, if we're honest, like we live in the shadow of churches that are just blatantly messing up the message about Christ uh, and or using a medium of cool and hip that just leaves us often feeling weak and, un and, and unimpressive. I mean, think of different examples, perhaps, from our churches now, the, the, the Sunday morning service that you're just kind of cringing as the worship leader struggles to lead the congregation or the, the guy who's at the soundboard is just, um, you know, fumbling it and that everything's out of whack or, or that you're singing, but the words on the screen have not changed yet. And you're the only one singing and you're wondering why is no one else singing right now? Right. We often feel weak. And I would say that that's one of the unique gifts of small town ministry. We have the opportunity to beautifully bring together the medium and the message. And I'd like, to, I'd like us to think about how this plays out in the church's singing. So let's go with our theme of weakness. It's fitting that if we're going to talk about the, the gift of weakness, we have to start with the gospel. Though the gospel is, as Paul said, the power of God unto salvation, it is a gospel that comes cloaked in weakness. And the same Paul who says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation is the same one who said that the message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. It displays a God who humbles himself. It displays a God who gets his hands dirty by saving sinners. And who gets in on the good news? Well, according to our gospel, it's the poor in spirit. Only the humble get, exalt, get exalted. The proud, the self-satisfied, the, the self-glorifying cannot enter the kingdom. Only those who admit their weakness and receive Christ with the empty, dirty hands of faith. But it's not like we enter the kingdom and we stop needing the gospel, right? As we grow, we actually sense more of our sin more of our weakness, and that is the Christian life. 
Philippians 3, Paul says that the Christian life is one of more deeply knowing our need for Christ and, and on account of that, more deeply knowing Christ. So this is how we want our churches to show up every Sunday. This is how we want them to sing. Not as people who are bored with the gospel. Not as people who have no sins to confess or weaknesses to admit, but as blood-bought sufferers and sinners who worship the Lord, rejoice in his goodness, and petition him for more and more of his grace. That is the message that we want to dwell richly among us. So this is what we should be singing. As we select gospel-rich songs for our churches to sing every week, we are reminding them and reminding ourselves that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, but as Tim Keller has said, it is the A to Z of the Christian life. We're, we're, we're communicating week in and week out through selecting gospel-rich songs that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. But how should we sing? Right? So w- what should the medium be? I'm not going to argue for contemporary versus traditional or traditional versus contemporary. And I'm not concerned with whether you sing new songs or old songs, though I would say that you're robbing yourself if only you do one or the other. I'd like to argue that working with what you've got is better than trying to be something that you're not. Working with what you got is much better than trying to be something that you're not. So in other words, embrace weakness. I'm not saying that if you have very talented musicians, you should not utilize them. You definitely should. But but I think a unique struggle in small-town churches is that we often feel weak and under-resourced when it comes to the, the congregation's singing and worship. And the sooner we see that as a strength, we are actually able to unleash the most important instrument in the in congregational worship, which is the voices of the people. So if the message is that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, then what better medium is there than a torrent of voices singing his praise? And it's because it's about his glory, not ours, that we don't have to be anything special. We don't have to have the best sound system. We don't need to have a hip worship leader. We just need the gospel and a room to sing in. So I want to talk about three ways to amplify weakness, and then I'll talk about three ways to amplify singing. Before I do that, though, any comments? Did you say the more we know our need for Christ, the more we know Christ? Yeah. Yeah. That's a very powerful idea, actually. Um, And I also just really like working with what you got. It's better than trying to be something you're not. Yeah, because because the the result, and we've all seen this from time to time, like, like a small church with like 20 people <laughs> in, in the crowd and like 10 people up front. It's like, yeah. what, what exactly are we doing together? Yeah. Like we're trying to be something that yes. we're not. And that's often what happens is that people are taking their cues from kind of the mega church that they're seeing online or, or whatever. And, um, yeah. and it, can, it can obscure the beauty of weakness. We can be giving in to the sentiment of the super apostles without even realizing that's what we're doing. So let's, with that, let, let's talk about three ways to amplify weakness. A community that knows one another can sing better together. 
And that's one of the blessings of being a part of a, a smaller church in a smaller town is that people are just more connected to what's happening in each other's lives. So we very much resonate with Paul's words that when, uh, he says this in 1 Corinthians 12, right? That when one member of the body suffers, all the other members suffer along with it. That is a blessing to a church. So Colossians 3.16 tells us that when we sing, we shouldn't miss this, we are teaching and admonishing one another. So when I know that I have a sister in the church who is afflicted, Part of my job when we sing the hymn, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near, is to teach and admonish her as I sing out. When there's a couple in our church who's mourning a recent miscarriage, I can sing out for their comfort, help of the helpless, abide with me. When members of the church are discouraged because there's people in the wider community who are slandering our church, we can sing out, a mighty fortress is our God. So there have been many times when I've been brought to tears in singing because we as brothers and sisters know one another and we know what's going on in each other's lives and that helps us sing because we're not singing abstract truths that we're not familiar with but things that we are experiencing together in real time so in this way we're, we're being spiritually formed maybe I'm not currently walking through the valley of death but as I watch my brother or sister go through it with songs of faith, my faith gets strengthened by theirs. Knowing one another helps us sing. Whether you're a pastor or a worship teacher, uh, worship leader, teach your people that they have a ministry, that they are responsible to carry out every Sunday the ministry of singing. Singing uh, becomes a way for us to amplify weakness as we declare together our need for God. So that's the first way to amplify Weakness. Second, a community that lacks polish can be more authentic. A community that lacks polish can be more authentic. <clears throat> I don't know if this is the cynical New Englander in me, but I'm just not impressed with really polished worship environments. Uh, I, I think we should strive uh, to do things with, with excellence. And, and we should admit there's a lack of polish that in, in some churches that can be distracting, that's not good. But in an age that is craving authenticity, in an age that's increasingly tired of airbrushed pictures on Instagram, in a society that cringes over superficiality that exists in many churches, we have an opportunity in our small town churches to be refreshingly authentic. So when the voices are the main instrument and people are singing from a place of weakness, it doesn't get much more authentic than that, right? And that can actually be a witness for the gospel. As we declare a gospel of humility and weakness, we show people that you don't have to look like Joel Osteen to be a Christian. We can be honest about the many dangers and toils and snares of the Christian life. We can be honest about our sins and our idolatries. And the less veneer, the more believable we are. In our singing, we can put into practice Paul's methodology. Here's, I think, Paul's methodology that I would apply from 2 Corinthians to our singing. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I won't read all of it, but I, I'll point you to two, I think, very significant verses. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Paul says, We have renounced 
That's strong language. We have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, for we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now let's think about what Paul's saying just in relation to the singing of the church. Now, as we, as we reflect on that, there's probably ways that we can see that sometimes the worship of the church has been kind of a, a way of uh, kind of secretly using a tactic to maybe elicit a certain emotional response or you know, get people hyped up that's not necessarily bound up with the open display of the truth but more so just the vibe that's being given. And, and we even think about the polish, right? In some ways, and this is, I'm not pointing my finger, but in some ways, it, it, at least we could say there is the temptation to be proclaiming ourselves in those environments. Instead, the worship leader, the, the goal of the worship team shouldn't be to have the spotlight, but to shine a light. And this is what leads to verse 6 in 2 Corinthians verse uh, chapter 4 it's to shine a light on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ how does God do that through the word through the word being unleashed that's the, the the second way that we amplify weakness a community that lacks polish can be more authentic and truthful and then third way a, a community that elevates singing and substance over style cultivates deeper unity so how, how many of you have uh, been a part of churches or know somebody who's been a part of a church that has split or had discord over the style of music? Isn't that fleshly? Power, preference, not considering others more important than yourself, minimizing the power of gospel for the power of production. In short, I think often not wanting to feel weak is what's behind those, those worship wars. And I think the problem with worship wars is that they've, they've taken what is kind of the least important thing, the style, and made it the most important. But if the voices are the main instrument, and we're concerned that the message about Christ is dwelling richly among us, right? The singing and the substance is the most important thing. There's a deeper unity that gets cultivated there. How? Well, firstly, we're, we're not looking at music as the savior. We're not, it, 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 music is a means to an end. It's a means to Christ. It points us to the savior. Secondly, if Christ is our unity, then singing about him together is sweet, regardless of the style of the song. If Christ is our unity, then singing about him is just sweet, no matter what. And then third, if we are building a community on the gospel that that glories in a Savior who laid down his life for us, then we can lay down our lives, our preferences for each other. And if we're increasingly knowing and loving one another, it's a joy to do that. I think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, that he says that he would gladly spend and be spent for them. I think... A similar mindset when it comes to the, the, the worship of the church is in order.
I would also add that that when we sing together, there's there's physically a unity that we experience. Let's just think about that, right? Our, our, our voices are singing as one. We are experiencing physical unity. Science shows that our hearts actually start beating in unison when we are singing together. I mean, what a beautiful picture of how the medium is the message. It deepens the unity of the church. It shows off the unity of the church. So that's three ways to amplify weakness. Before I talk about three ways to amplify singing, any comments or questions? So, youth group, I have tried in the past to introduce singing to the beginning of it. Those youth would all claim that they know each other very well. Mm. So how could I... How, how can you get them to sing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have several thoughts for what it's worth. Okay. And I would just say them quickly, like... Just teach the gospel joyfully and and pray that that affects their hearts. Because I do think that singing is an overflow of the heart. Yeah, that's right. Another thing that I would say is teach them about singing. Yeah. I think that's a good thing to do. I, th I think we sometimes assume that people understand why we sing. And right. actually the Bible has a lot of reasons for why we sing and I think it's good to teach people why we sing yeah. and then the third thing I would say and this is really logistical I remember when we were starting out as a church we were doing the same thing we were like compiling a song list and I'd look out on something and people were not singing and I realized it was because we were like teaching new songs almost every week right and so I noticed that when we when we corrected that and started repeating songs and being careful with our song selection, um, people were singing out better. And so I would recommend take like the top 10 songs that you guys sing at church and start with those. Yeah. The, like the top 10 most most sung songs. Yeah. And if they're, especially if they're great songs for singing. Let's talk about three ways to amplify singing. So here is the bottom line of the argument, voices are the primary instrument in the church's worship. We have to believe that, and we should do everything we can to enhance the singing of God's people. And, and it frees small town pastors and worship leaders from the burden of musical complexity and uh, even proficiency. Uh, the voices of people simply need to be unleashed. And so Here's three helps for encouraging and amplifying singing in your church. First, teach a theology of singing. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 shows us that, that when the saints gather and worship, there's like a cosmic reality that they are joining into. They are being joined with the worship that's already happening in heaven. You should teach your people about the cosmic reality of, of singing. Uh, teach them that God is a singing God. Zephaniah 3.17, God delights in his people. What do we do when we delight in somebody? We sing. Right? God delights over his people and he sings over his people. We see in Hebrews 2, uh, verse 12, that Jesus is the chief worship leader of the church, declaring God's praise in the assembly to his brothers and sisters. Uh, we, we see why we sing. Uh, Psalm 22, verse 3, says that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. 
We see in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that singing is both vertical and horizontal. We sing songs to God, but also songs that encourage one another. We sing to one another as well. So there's a vertical dimension, but there's also this horizontal dimension. Singing is, is an act of obedience. Think about all the psalms that command us to sing. Singing is an act of spiritual warfare. I love the, the story in 2 Chronicles uh, 20, 21-22, where it talks about the troops of Israel going out to battle, and they were singing. And it was through their singing that God delivered their enemies into their hands. It's just an awesome picture of singing is spiritual warfare. Like we, we are doing battle against the forces of darkness by lifting our voices to sing to God, declaring the victory of Christ. Singing also helps us endure suffering. Think of Paul and Silas, Acts 16. They're in prison. They're, they are in the depths. They are in the dungeon of despair. And what do they do? They sing. Singing helps us endure suffering. And singing also expresses and excites our emotions. You can see that all through the Psalms. I think that's a Jonathan Edwards phrase, that singing has been given to us as a way to express and excite the emotions of the heart. And we see in Psalms just this rich catalog of different emotions that are presented to us for singing. So we should, we should teach a theology of singing. Second, give them songs that are worth singing. Notice in Colossians 3 that Paul exhorts us to let the word about Christ dwell among us. Uh, there are many songs, though, that seem to be more a word about us than about Christ. Vague spirituality will not sustain hungry souls that only Christ can satisfy. And you think about the 21st century that, w that we are in. We are blessed with just so many good songs. We have, we have the songs of Christian history that Christians have been singing through the century. And then we have these new theologically rich Christ-exalting songs. There's, there's so much. And so theologically rich songs, this doesn't mean that, that we should get songs that read like a textbook or retained kind of the dusty language of antiquity that nobody knows what these words mean anymore. They, they should be songs that are accessible, that are understandable. And I, I think the, the way that I would, I would help us understand what those songs should be is select songs of depth and songs of breadth. So songs of depth, right? Songs of depth are just songs that point us to the deep things of God. Uh, songs that highlight the beauty of creation and God's glory, the person and the work of Christ, the glory of the Trinity, the mystery of God's providence, the joy of salvation, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the character of God, the promises of God, the hope of heaven, the hope of the new creation. We should select songs of depth, um, but also select songs of breadth, songs that highlight the range of human emotions and experiences. Several years ago, Carl Truman wrote an excellent article entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? I highly recommend it. Uh, I have a link on the handout uh, for it. He, he writes this, by excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate 
both inside and outside the church. By so doing, it has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism generated by an insipid, tri trivial, and unrealistic triumphal Christianity, triumphalist Christianity and confirmed its impeccable credentials as a club for the complacent. That is a very Carl Truman way of putting it. <laughs> so though we are redeemed, and though we have great reason for great joy in our singing, we still live in a fallen world. The breadth of human experience is one that involves both major and minor keys. Small places grant us a great opportunity to select songs with particular people in mind and give them language to express the sorrows of their hearts, to express the different emotional state that they, states that they may be in. Thirdly, give them songs that they can actually sing. What I mean by that is there's some songs that just aren't very singable. And so there's a reason that certain songs, we were talking about this earlier, like there's songs like you can get to the second line and you already know how to sing it. It's already drawing your voice out. And then there's, there's songs that just stand the test of time. They're, they're like, uh, they transcend culture. They transcend uh, generations. Amazing grace, come thou found, holy, holy, holy. They, these songs don't go out of, out of style. And that's because they are singable timelessly singable. They can be sung, sung in a storefront. They can be sung in a cathedral. And this attests to the fact that not all melodies are created equal. A song can have great words, but if it can't be sung, it's not worth singing. So choose songs that can't help but bring the voice out. There's no litmus test for what qualifies, but I would just say you know these songs when you hear them. You just know them. They, they, they hit you. They're singable. And the more singable the song, the more heartfelt the voices are able to be because the voices are the main instrument. So this is the wonderful gift that we have in bringing the medium and, and the message together in singing. And it is an essential task of the church. This falls under the teaching ministry of the church. And so if you're a pastor, you should be involved in this ministry, helping lead and, and set the tone for what's appropriate. And it's a wonderful gift because like we said, this is, this is a word ministry that we're calling the congregation toward one another to carry out. It can be awkward at times, but I think that's one of the best kept secrets of small town ministry is that we get to show off the glory of God through our weakness, through our voices. We don't need to impress anybody. The voices might be all that we've got, but they're all that we need. Any final questions or comments? Oh, I have another question. Yeah. So tying the songs to the sermon, does yeah. every song have to tie to the same theme as, or the sermon text or whatever? Yeah. So I used to think, um, I used to be very hard on that, and I've loosened up a lot on that because... I mean, like, we're going to be preaching Job this summer. I mean, like, like what, are we just going to just sing dirges the whole time? You know? So I, I think that there's two things that you can do. I think one of them is, yeah, pick songs that connect with the sermon, especially before and after the sermon. 
I also think there's something to be said. I think Brian Chapel talks about this in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, but he talks about how the church's worship should rehearse the gospel. And so if we think about the gospel as God, man, Christ response, um, you know, we, we start with songs of adoration, right? Adoring God, singing about his holiness, about his glory. But then we, we get to songs of confession or lament, um, songs that talk about our weakness. And then we sing the gospel, right? We, we sing songs that talk about the, the, the grace of God in Christ. And then songs of supplication, which I think is our response, right? How we respond in faith and repentance. So I, I would encourage... I think, it's, I think it's good to connect songs to the sermon that's being sung, but I would say try to do both. Try to rehearse the gospel, try to get the different ranges of emotion, and I would also say something about tone, and that's that, you know, um, I think it's really good to have joyful songs, right? It's like, this is the already, not yet of the Christian life is like there we are redeemed Christ is victorious like heaven is a certainty for his people and we have we, we should be careful I, I think that like the flip side of this is like going really hard in one direction that almost teaches people that the Christian life is just us just kind of just trying to grin and bear it yeah. but we really should be teaching people to rejoice and um, so do both the best the best we can yeah. and get feedback I mean something I would say and I'm sure that you guys did this at Grace Bible and um, you know but having a, a service review where you're able to talk whether it's with fellow members or staff people and say hey how did that go you know how did that song go you know how are we doing on you know joy but also yeah. kind of making place for lament and sorrow as well so yeah. Would anybody add anything to that? Yeah. So. I mean, I think it's a great idea. To, it's something we, I mean, I, sometimes I do think, what, what's it like for a non-Christian to come into our service and to stand and sing songs with a whole bunch of other people facing the same direction, looking at these words on it? It's like, it must be a weird yeah. experience. It's not something that happens very often yeah. in our culture. And we, but we spend so much time doing it in our services yeah. It feels like there should be some teaching and coaching on it. And I, I was reflecting on the Colossians 3.16 passage you have on the front of the handout. And it is striking how we, uh, we teach and admonish one another. So there's the horizontal aspect of uh, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. So there's the vertical. And I think we don't do enough of either one of those um, Often we just kind of sing mindlessly, so we're not actually uh, we're not actually looking to God as we sing. Uh, we're just singing words. So I think we need to we need to coach our people in that. But we we definitely need to coach people to look around and think about other people who are singing and pray for other people. And that's been so moving to me um, when I'm singing about whatever I'm singing about hardship and I'm, I'm seeing someone who is I'm praying for that person who I know is going through that difficult thing or maybe like you said you're seeing them sing and that builds your faith because you see that they are trusting Christ um, as they sing that's such a rich concept and um, I think we could teach a lot more about that than we do so that's a good encouragement for you
And I think one of the ways, uh, there's many ways to teach it, right? So you could do it through a sermon. That could be fun and great and beneficial. But then also just, you know, if it's the pastor just starting and just giving a quick 30-second word that exhorts people to understand what they're doing, I think that's that's helpful. That's really so there's all these like there's little ways we can kind of insert little teaching moments into the service um, that help orient people rightly in the singing time. Yeah, two things. Um, you talked about the coaching people to encourage one another as they sing. Like I wonder how we can normalize looking around, not in a distracting way, but like you said, a newcomer comes in, we're all facing the same direction. How could we? change that so that we normalize looking around similar to like the Lord's Supper like so it's not just me and my cup but it's like a communal thing um, um, and then I did want to ask you as a worship leader like how do you if you introduce songs and you say something um, to the church prior to singing the song how do, what, what guides you through that on what to say like I've, I've tried to bring out like a an important lyric from the song and I've either I've also tried to teach the congregation in like 15 seconds, like, hey, sing to one another right now. Do you, do you do things similar to that, and how do you go about it? I wish I was more comfortable talking. <laughs> I'm just not. You're the pastor. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, t I'm comfortable when I'm behind a pulpit, but when I'm behind a guitar, not as much. Okay. Uh, and part of that is because our services are kind of liturgical, and like, every, every I don't want to waste time. Mm -hmm. And not that that's a waste of time. Right, it can right. be really beneficial, but I'm not good at it. Um, sure. I wish I were. And there's some, we see so many like abuses of that. Yeah. We see some abuses of that, right? Like, you know, the worship leader just like won't shut up. <laughs> he just keeps talking and talking. It's like he's having his personal devotions in front of everybody. And so I'm I'm I lean towards being leery of talking in between songs. I might just say one-liners. Yeah. Yeah. That just just try to, you know, let's sing this song as a prayer. You know, yeah. let's let's unite our hearts and our voices together. But um, I think that there's a way to to do that a little a little better. Um, you know, who's a, I think a really good worship leader is just listen to Bob Coughlin at the Together for the Gospel conferences. He does a really good job of incorporating scripture into um, the interludes. What a wealth of wisdom from Joel. I'm so thankful to him for his heart in leading the church in authentic worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that that breakout session is an encouragement to you to do the same. And I hope that it's helpful to share with other worship leaders that you may know, other pastors who are looking to cultivate that same part of worship in the midst of our weakness in our small churches. Reminder, if you listen to this in time, that we have a summit coming up on June 1st. That's this week. If you need to show up at the door, you are welcome. That is June 1st in Ware, New Hampshire. If you can't make that one, we'll have three more summits in the fall. Maine in September, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, both in October. You can find information about all three of those summits on our website, smalltownsummits.com. Uh, it would help us if this podcast has been an encouragement to you to leave a review 
on iTunes so that you can help us get this podcast into more hands and that we can encourage more people who are serving Jesus in small places and share it with friends if this has been an encouragement or helpful to you in any way. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and establish the work of your hands.